As I was preparing this talk, I was remembering a time when I was at a long retreat. I think it was the first time that, the second time that Upandita, one of our teachers, came to teach in America. And I was at that two-month retreat. And the whole retreat was about mindfulness. The whole retreat, all 60 Dharma talks were about mindfulness. And you know that the Dharma talks, well, not exactly all of them, because sometimes someone else came to speak. And um, every Dharma talk was just kind of awe-inspiring. Some were boring because had a lot of little, you know, um, Burmese and Pali scriptural details. And then there was this lovely um, uh, monk, um, and he came to speak. And he was one of the soft-spoken ones of the group that uh, Upandita brought along. And he doesn't very much give a Dharma talk, but he had to give a talk on something uh, that was hard to listen to. And it was a talk about craving and about wanting. And uh, so he came to the uh, microphone and he said, Sedao uh, Ji, that means the, the beloved Sedao, the, the boss, you know, like Upandita. Sedao uh, Ji has been giving very beautiful talks, and now I'm going to, uh, that are like dessert and like good food and nourishment, but I'm going to give a talk that's like medicine. And sometimes medicine is bitter, it's not so good tasting. But we have to take the medicine, too. So that was just a precursor to my talk tonight on craving. (laughs) I kept going over this talk and thinking, what can I say that's uplifting about about this? (laughs) Not very much, but I'll try in my stories and whatnot. So tonight, I'd like to bring into light, into mindful awareness, the subject of desire of craving and of clinging. And it's such a vast subject that as I was trying to prepare this, there was so much that I had to leave out, you know, too many details. And I just tried to put in the pithy things that we could start with as we start to understand this whole area of wanting, desire, craving, clinging. It's part of the important part of the Four Noble Truths. And many of you have probably heard uh, talks just on the Four Noble Truths, the cause for this vexation and turmoil and vulnerability that we go through, the first Noble Truth. And the second Noble Truth is about um, the cause, is about the cause for this vexation and suffering we go through. And so I'm just wanting to fill that part out tonight. The vulnerability we have as individuals and as humanity as a whole. And how does it feel to go through all of that? Um, The sense of wanting and not wanting and um, craving for something. And then when we get it, clinging to it. So this is the this is the part of our lives that we really need to take a good look at. Because it's been constantly shaping and redefining our lives and the sense of who we are, mostly it's doing that because it's happening on, uh, for the lar- on, on large uh, through unconsciousness. We're not conscious of it being there. It happens unknowingly. And so what what goes on is this just immediate um, predicament we find ourselves in of just going after something that isn't going to really bring us that lasting happiness that we're looking for. So they are habitual forces. They're deeply and tenaciously rooted in the minds and hearts of all of us. So it's important to recognize and understand this really powerful force, and how our practice is weakening that bit by bit. It's not uh, going to hide in delusion and in ignorance if we can bring a sense of mindful awareness to it 
in the moment that it happens. Or maybe we don't pick it up right away and we notice that maybe on our sitting cushion we've been pining away for our morning Starbucks coffee and we don't have it here. Or whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a victim of that myself. And so I understand how, how it can be. When um, it comes into the light that there has been this wanting or this um, craving or maybe it's already, in, even in our minds, we've already hooked it in there and we're having a, an experience of it in our minds and even clinging to it there in our minds. When the mind can come to know that, when mindful awareness can come to know that, it's possible for the light of awareness to take that out of the darkness and for that to drop away. And so we'll, we'll see this in our practice experientially as we go along. And every time that happens, it's weakening its habit pattern, its pattern to just insert itself um, because, really, because of not being seen, because we just allow it to go on and on and on without bringing up the, the light of mindful awareness to it. So hopefully with these um, examples and, and the vocabulary around it that is used in the Pali language, we can understand more deeply and more experientially how it arises and how it's relinquished and how there is a possibility for us to be more and more free from its grip, from being entrapped by it. Because we know that if it's not recognized, that force is strengthened through habit. You know when you have that um, sort of perfect go-to thought, that if you think of that thought, then kind of everything's all right for a while, and so you just go there, and then, and you know something's all right for a little while. You know, you have that thought... It's even something really nice sometimes, like about your grandchildren or about being in the garden or something like that or eating your favorite food that you don't get here. And so when we do that and we don't see that um, habituated pattern happening when craving or clinging, and clinging comes along with it, and we're hanging on to even that thought And then maybe that thought goes away because something else interrupts it, and then something else is known. Well, that uh, craving and clinging goes back into the karmic stream to arise again because it was not seen. And that's how it's just perniciously happening over and over and over again. So if, if it can be seen, I mean, the thought can still happen, and if it can be seen and say, oh, there's that craving again, it's weakening it. It's not making you wrong or making you wipe out everything in your life that's pleasant. We can enjoy the temporary pleasant happinesses that arise and also learn to let them go because eventually we know that that's what happens anyway. So unknowingly, the the force of this habit when it's unattended to by mindful awareness, strengthens it. But when it's attended to with, uh, with mindful awareness, it, it weakens, it drops away. So we don't want this force to unknowingly control our lives. In the Dharma, or the Dhammas, sometimes you hear Mark and I say, Dhamma is, we use the Pali word a lot, Dharma is a Sanskrit word, and they're, they're interchangeable. It's okay. There are three roots of suffering, um, and you hear about these all the time. Greed, hatred, and delusion. And so greed is it, it's a very extensive subject, and it sort of kind of uh, spells out what the bigger picture is. Within greed... There's craving and clinging and wanting and desire, and all those have kind of different definitions and ways of of being described experientially. And then there's hatred, which is the opposite of greed. Actually, they're two sides of the same coin. You know, when 
when we want something and it's pleasant, the mind will automatically go after it if there's not enough mindful uh, awareness. And if it, if it gets something, if something happens that's unpleasant, it pushes it away. So it just has the opposite effect of it, but it's still uh, coming under the realm of um, suffering, both of those. And there's, then there's delusion or ignorance. And both greed and hatred are accompanied by delusion when not seen clearly. So those are the three roots of suffering. And in some traditions they call it the three poisons. So they're called the roots of suffering because when they're not recognized, when there's no mindful awareness around them, they're acted out and they are suffering in the moment and from the consequences of it. So let's start out by using the framework of the Four Noble Truths. That's where uh, this understanding uh, it was first delivered by the Buddha, this understanding of the cause of suffering. This was the first Dhamma talk that the Buddha gave to his... Um, his companions on the path, those that he worked with for years to try to see what could be be the end of suffering and do all the uh, practices that they did. But what the Buddha found out was that none of that was really totally successful. And so he set out to find a way that there could be a really deeper understanding of what was... what. what the basic problem is, what the cause of that problem is, what could be the medicine, the, the end for that cause, and the medicine for it, the, the kind of path to take so that it could lead to the end. And so that's what he did under the Bodhi tree. And he came to understand the origin of, of this all, the, basically the lack of that um, peace, what was that caused by? And came to kind of lay it out more fully in the Four Noble Truths. So his, that was his first sermon uh, that he gave to his um, companions along the way of his practice. And it's called Turning of the Wheel of the Dharma. And the the Dhamma is the truth of how things are. That's what it means, really. So it's called the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta. So the first noble truth is called Dukkha Satcha. And Satcha means the truth. Dukkha means suffering. And so it's, it's really simple. He said, he kind of just laid it down there is the truth of suffering. And what I appreciate so much about that is that he laid it down in a way that was accessible for me and a lot of beings. Because it wasn't about, you know, this is the end, you just have to get to this blissful place and then, you know, everything will be all right in your life. And talking about that blissful place first, what he talked about first was There is the truth, the reality of the fact that it's difficult to live in this body, as Mark was talking about last night, and in this life as a human being. And that's the basic truth that we're born with. So I I was attracted to this path of practice because it spoke to me. It spoke to me in a way that... um, I had a lot of benefit, I feel, from my path on the um, understanding the ways of, of Christ and, and Jesus and all the saints and being in, on the Catholic path. I said a lot of rosaries and novenas, so I learned a lot of concentration there, too. But it really never met me in terms of like starting from where I was really at. And that it's really hard. And um, it was always that I was reaching for something that was unreachable. 
but somebody said something that kind of responded to the truth of my life. And the Buddha said that this noble truth should be investigated, meaning to say, you know, we, read, we need to get, we need to open to it and not need to feel that we have to jump over it or go around it somehow. We need to go through it to really understand it. It means facing it. It means starting at the place of reality, of this is the truth. And the second noble truth is that there is a cause, an origin of this suffering. And this is where craving comes in. The Buddha talks about this is craving. This is the fact of craving. And this cause is to be relinquished, is to be abandoned. And there are many ways that... um, the Buddha and, and many of his disciples uh, brought out the uh, remedies for this, and I'm going to name a few this evening. It's to be abandoned, relinquished. And the third noble truth is a promise that there is an end to suffering, that that's our potential as human beings. And uh, going through these steps, we, we really learn the path and how to navigate it for ourselves because each of us has a unique way of navigating, of opening to different aspects of suffering, ourselves, and humanity. And the last truth is that there is a way to the end, there is a path to the end. And this was the medicine that the Buddha offered to us and that is the Eightfold Noble Path. So the first noble truth is a recognition of our human predicament. In that time, there was this kind of way that you would look at things medically. So you would would look at um, and, and actually state the fact that this is a disease. This noble truth is the disease to be treated. And the second noble truth is about the diagnosis that Uh, There is a cause for this. The reason is craving. And so that was it. I mean, it was so plain and simple. Hard for a lot of people to take in, believe. But the cause of this suffering, of this dis-ease, as our human predicament, is craving. And third noble truth is a prognosis that it is possible to become free. It is possible to overcome this craving. That is our human potential. And that is the possibility. Uh, If this medicine is applied, and that is the fourth noble truth, which is the therapy, the medicine, and that's the uh, realization that we can walk the Eightfold Noble Path and come to the end of suffering. So in different ways, we've been pointing out the Eightfold Noble Path to you. Um, It has to do with calming the mind and also uh, following the precepts, developing a way to calm the mind and then to develop wisdom. So, so much hinges on our understanding of the root of this craving, of the root of attachment that it's important for us to understand its nature and how it operates and how it manifests and how it manipulates us as human beings when we're not seeing so clearly, when there's delusion or ignorance in the mind. So when it's like that, it's not likely to entrap us or to fool us. So I want to um, just reassure all of us that experiencing attachment, aversion, delusion, uh, craving and clinging is part of us. It's human nature. It's common among all of us. And bit by bit, we're understanding how to face it, to recognize it, and to not get trapped by it. But we still are. And, you know, I see it in the best of my friends and human beings that are on the path. And so we have to understand that it's a gradual purification process that we're undertaking. 
And um, as you'll come to know and see in yourself and in others that who practice along the path, that um, gradually one learns to become less and less holding on and more and more letting go, and less and less um, sort of lost in a state of loss or grieving, and more and more lighthearted. So conditions in our life change as we continue to do the practice. So um, we're learning to strengthen the conditions that overcome uh, this holding on, this craving, this um, clinging, and the ways where desire reaches out for things that are not going to give us really lasting happiness, but we go towards that over and over again. I'm, I'm going to fill out the understanding of desire in, in the Buddhist um, understanding so that you're not looking at desire as a bad word because it's not totally a bad word. There is desire for goodness. There is desire for being on the path. There is desire for purification. There, there's all kinds of good desire. You know, So it depends what you're talking about. There's different words for that in the Pali language, actually. So some of the conditions we learn to strengthen along the way before I get too much more into craving and clinging, just to bring out some positive forces in our, le- in our lives and in ourselves, is we understand for ourselves that there is generosity in our lives. That's the opposite of letting go. We have that sense of just um, giving of ourselves. We have a sense of um, just an inborn sense. We don't even have to learn it, but sometimes we need to strengthen it in our lives because maybe what we've gone through in this lifetime or others, a sense of really uh, inherent sense of love, an inherent sense of friendliness that's there of wanting to connect in a good way with ourselves and others. That's truly there for all of us. The power of wisdom to be able to see through the illusion sometimes. You know, moments of, we've all had it or else we won't, wouldn't be here. We have some wisdom to open to how things are. So there are many already beautiful forces of the mind that are working in all of us, perseverance, um, uh, renunciation, that actual letting go in the moment. So all of these forces are counteracting the forces of greed and hatred in our lives. So we come to understand um, this inner terrain more clearly and having more acceptance of the parts that are difficult and the parts that are beautiful as well. Um, when I first came to practice, I, um, I wanted to like open to the light. Open to the light. But somebody pointed out to me that that's only half of the opening. And sometimes more than half is your opening to the shadow side, what they call the shadow side of our being. And that's a side that isn't seeing so clearly how things are, or the side of ourselves where we have underlying motivations or intentions and we don't really see where we're actually coming from. And so in our practice here, we learn to be more honest and bring the light of awareness to everything as much as we can that comes up. But I I just wanted to impart to you that in in a lot of dharma circles, we're quite accepting of the fact that everyone is different. You know, when Mark and I and um, others close to us on our path have conversations, often in our conversations is is an actual um, admission that, that, well, I'm this type of temperament, therefore the mind usually goes in this direction. And I might say, well, I am this kind of temperament, so it usually goes in this direction. And those temperaments uh, in the Buddhist uh, 
psychology, so to say, are uh, temperaments of greed, hatred, and delusion. So one is usually the greedy type, or the aversive type, or the deluded type. Now, um, we have a combination. All of us have a combination, but maybe one stands out more than the other. So when we get, you know, really um, close to one another, we sometimes it's not so good, but we use that as an excuse. Like, oh, I'm the greedy type, that's why I did that. You know, but actually that's not very good. But we do still do that because we're all not fully enlightened yet. I don't know anybody yet that's like that close to me. Uh, But we're all doing the best we can and we're getting closer and closer, hopefully. So uh, these different types of temperament, I was always sort of... um, Enchanted by what do they really mean? So when Manindra was in my life, when he was alive and staying uh, in my house, I asked him a lot of questions. And one of the questions I asked him, well, what type am I? You know, and he said, oh, you're very balanced. And I smiled and I said, why? Why do you say that? And he said, you have all three. (laughs) But... (laughs) The greedy type really stands out. So I said, well, why? What, what does that look like to you? And he said, because I can tell that when there's something pleasant, you're all, you go after the pleasant. If it's unpleasant, you turn away and you go after the pleasant. And you know, that, that is the way that I'll avoid like arguments and things like that. And I'll just look for something nicer to be around. Um, and so that, that is part of my temperament. And so I am part and parcel of sometimes things get put under the rug, you know, in relationships. And we don't talk about it because I can condone that easily. Um, or I'll say, gee, I'd rather just have a nice cup of tea than talk about this, something like that. But I am told by certain people that are close to me that I can really talk about it too. So um, I can really face the dukkha also. So the greedy type is the one kind of looking out for pleasant experience. And um, that kind of uh, temperament doesn't see so much sometimes the aversive nature that might be there. Now, I must admit that I'm seeing more aversive nature in me, in in this temperament. And actually, luckily, I've developed a little more mindfulness than 20 years ago. So I can see it before it comes out of my mouth or out, out of my actions. So I can get out the Dharma duct tape more quickly than usual. And so that helps. So this is, um, this is an example of Three temperaments coming into a restaurant. (laughs) So uh, when I go into a restaurant, the first thing I look for is the most comfortable spot in the restaurant. And for me, comfortable is in a corner where there's not a lot of noise and it's away from the kitchen door. And I look up where the vents are and I don't want to be near a vent. I mean, I really look at a lot of things. (laughs) And um, so I go for that place. And when I come into a place uh, with someone else, and all of you know Steve Armstrong, um, he's my Dharma partner, and when we go into a restaurant together, he'll look for a place he doesn't want to go to. And it might be the same place I want to go to, but he, he's out for looking what is going to cause aversion in his mind. He's, he's, he's out for looking at the unpleasant, which is... is is a good thing to do also. Um, And so that person is looking for the unpleasant and kind of not wanting it to get to, when when you have a good mind, you're not wanting it to get to aversion. And so the deluded type doesn't even know what they want. They just kind of follow what everybody else does. And uh, we have one of our friends... um, I'm not going to mention her name, but she does 
say that she's a deluded type herself in public. But anyway, when we go out to dinner with this person, she really does say, I don't care, whatever you guys want to do. And we just go, <laughs> whoever is the strongest of the greedy type or the deluded, uh, the aversive type wins. Whoever is the most insistent, which is usually the greedy type, is the most insistent. Me. <laughs> So those are the temperaments that we, we have. And I just wanted to say that because a lot of times when we talk about um, this desire or craving or uh, clinging, it's like these are like bad words. Like right away people feel shamed or blamed or, you know, like something's wrong with me right off the bat. But this is how it is for us as human beings. We all have certain temperaments. Now, there are those temperaments that are trans, um, transcending greed, hatred, and delusion. So, for example, a greedy type also has a manifestation of seeking. A greedy type seeks the pleasant. But what that transcends to is a faithful type, a faith-type being. And a faith type being is also seeking. And I, I'm, really, I'm really a faith type. I can tell that I'm that type of being also. I have a lot of faith in, in the Dharma. I have a lot of faith in my teachers, in myself. Enough faith in myself to keep going. And just um, sometimes I have kind of like this blind faith, which has gotten me to places where I never thought I could get. But, you know, I would just have a faith and I'd get there. Or something would come that would help a situation that the family's in because of faith. Faith is also seeking. It has that energy, but it's not like desire that's kind of seeking, not desire, but craving, which is seeking after and then clings to it, holds tightly to it. It's kind of turning towards something that is beneficial and going towards it. That's the energy of seeking in a faithful type. And so um, what I wanted to bring out in all of you is that you have that kind of faith, faithful type in you, because, or else you wouldn't be here, because you had to have had some faith to get here. It says that greed does not give up what's harmful, but faith does not give up what's beneficial. So faith seeks the good, and um, it has the energy of going for something, going after something, in the same way that greed does. But faith, when it's not actually blind faith, but when it's faith that has a little more wisdom, knows what's beneficial, knows what's good, and really goes after it, um, and holds on to it, too, in, in a way that I'm, I'm not going to let go of doing my sitting every morning because it's a good thing to do, or I'm not going to let go of developing generosity because it's a way to learn how to let go. So um, there comes a time when we need to understand for ourselves you know that to say the word desire and to say the word um, wanting is not always bad. It's a, it, sometimes we want what's beneficial. We want what's good. We want the Dharma. We want to be enlightened. We want the mind and heart to be purified. So let's take some time to explore um, some of the definitions of the words that we use to define this pernicious deep force that causes disease in in ourselves and in the world. The first word that I used before is greed. Now this is a noun that kind of covers the whole subject. And it's interesting, in the Persian wisdom I found this saying, do you know what can never be satisfied the eye of greed, all of the world's goods cannot fill the all of the world's um, 
eyes and wanting cannot fill the abyss of its desire. So it's just endless. You know, that kind of desire, the desire for something that we're looking to get, which doesn't have, isn't accompanied by wisdom. This comes from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. When it comes to dealing with greed, one thing which is quite characteristic is that although it arises from the desire to obtain something, it is not satisfied by obtaining it. Therefore, it becomes limitless or boundless, and that leads to trouble. The interesting thing about greed is that although the underlying motivation is to seek satisfaction, even after obtaining the object of one's desire, one is still not satisfied. On the other hand, if one has a strong sense of contentment, it doesn't matter whether one obtains the object or not. Either way, one is content. So that's why they say contentment is the greatest wealth. So in Webster's Dictionary, it defines this noun of of greed as excessive acquisitiveness. Um, But then there are words that imply a more active nature of this greed, how it reaches out. And one of the words is wanting. So wanting suggests a felt need or a lack of something. So it comes from Wanting comes from feeling that there's something lacking in us or in what we have or in what we can um, experience. And so it goes out, that seeking goes out to get what it wants. And again, if it's not accompanied by wisdom, it just keeps getting what it wants or not getting what it wants and keeps seeking or it gets what it wants and because of that action of getting what it wants, it um, reinforces the habit pattern. So it happens over and over and over again because of the habit pattern being reinforced. So desiring is a synonym to wanting and where there is an impulse to acquire something that promises satisfaction. But often there is a strong intention also to um, fulfill that. So when we desire something, sometimes it's so strong that you just can't stop. It's like there's no impulse control. Just, you know, keep looking at the news or have you ever been on, on the web and, you know, I'm buying something from Amazon, for example, and so I press the button and it, I can get it and it, it might be a, you know, a, um, a supplement or something. And then below it says, people who have tried this also um, have, have bought this. And then I press that button. And then I, I read all about, oh, that's really nice. And then, then it says the same thing, people who have bought this. And it's like, I realize all of a sudden that I've had no impulse control. I just have kept pressing those buttons over and over again. And that's like just pure greed and desire acting itself out, cannot stop. But it does, you know. I have had some training, so (laughs) I do stop. Um, So I want to stop here and, and point out a word that's in the, uh, the Pali language, that connotes the will or aspiration to do something. Now this word in Pali is neutral, actually, but when we accompany it by doing something beneficial, it turns into doing something good. So that word is chanda. And so sometimes, you know, the, the Pali words are so precise So chanda means, in this regard, doing something good, to become good, to attain a meritorious goal. And when chanda is free from a defiled state of mind, when it's not accompanied by, like, um, delusion, it goes towards what's good. So this is the word chanda. Um, 
So sometimes when we say, um, I would like to... I would like to experience a total purification of the mind, or I desire to, I want to. And that, that isn't bad. You know, sometimes people come to us as teachers with the question, well, what about desiring enlightenment? What about wanting? Well, you know, you don't have to talk about it that way. You just say the words, and if you... If it's something that's beneficial, then we know what that means. So there are different words that characterize the intensities of what we call desire that lead to a state of loss. Though, particular words, like the word raga in Pali, that actually means lust. And that doesn't mean like sexual lust. It stands for a state of lack inside. This is according to one of our great translators, Nyanaponika Thera of Sri Lanka, a German monk. He uh, describes it, raga, as a state of lack, a need and want. It is always seeking fulfillment, but its drive is inherently insatiable. As long as it endures, it maintains a, se- a sense of lack. That means one goes after something that one wants, and it could be, you know, any kind of um, activity or um, thing or person, and it won't stop until it gets it. And when it gets it, it wants more and more and more of the same. So it reminds me of um, that Persian wisdom I uh, talked about, I gave the words of, but it also reminds me of a time when. I was listening to a talk by Sharon Salzburg, and she was in a bazaar in the Middle East, in a marketplace. And um, there was a man shouting out, I have what you need. I have what you need. And uh, I can't remember Sharon's full story, but... It was like she was drawn to that. Oh, what is it that I need? You know? <laughs> she was kind of drawn to, where is that man calling from? As I remember the story, I could be remembering it wrong, but that's how the perception was in my mind at that time. And so what comes to me is that that, that happens to me. Like when I'm in a, a department store, you know, and everything is so neat, everything's hanging so nicely, and I love walking through it, and all the colors attract me, and, um, you know, or the shoes, or whatever it is. And I hear that voice calling from the dress rack, I have what you need, I have what you need. And then I realize, all right, that's tanha, that's craving. And uh, the best thing to do is not make contact with the dress rack (laughs) because otherwise it might take over. So, um, you know, that's how it goes. Uh, Contact brings feeling, feeling brings desire. So not making contact really, really helps. So not to go in the stores all the time because I'll hear, I have what you need. It's that constant wanting that is this human predicament that we're born into. Seeking happiness by um, feeding it with wanting more and more and more. So a way to counteract that is um, just getting in touch with that habitual feeling of lack. So the first thing that can come up for us is that feeling, not the feeling of wanting so much, although that can be the most predominant, but it's a feeling that we lack something. We're like, maybe, you know, we don't feel like we look good enough, so we need to get all kinds of things to help us look good. Or we don't feel like we have had enough uh, education, so we need to put more and more, you know, letters behind our names, or um, whatever it is. It's, it's coming from a lack, a, a feeling of lack within us. And whenever I feel that sense of emptiness, a kind of emptiness that wants to be filled, 
with wanting. You know, it wants to be filled. It's like calling out to me. You, there's something that you need. There's something that you need. And sometimes, of course, those needs are beneficial. We need to fulfill them. We need to take a walk. We need to have water. We need to survive. We need to protect our children. Of course, you know, don't get messed up with the words. Sometimes there are really questions that are really, like, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So just... uh, Sorry about that. So just... But it does get annoying, you know, like, you know, there's some intelligence that you have to bring to this understanding. So a way that we can counteract that is to just understand that sense of emptiness that we have that always kind of needs to be fulfilled. And that's one of the ways I've learned to notice that, that the wanting is going to come up pretty soon or it's just right there. And so then, if the wanting is there, to stay in tune with what is the pleasant feeling that it's going after. Sometimes just noticing that pleasant feeling really is a big help to me. And sometimes I'll notice the pleasant feeling first. So just to give you an example, today um, Mark and I were in the lunchroom, the room where the staff and we eat together, and um, somebody said when are you making brownies? The cook was there, you know. And right away, it was like, right away, I smelled the brownies. I mean, the smell is in the memory, right? So right away, that perception of brownies came up. The perception, the memory of the smell came up. And I could see, I was sitting quietly there, wanting that brownie right away. And it just came, boom, boom, boom. Just wanting that brownie. And between now and then, there have been at least ten times that it came up that, oh, the brownies, tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's just, but it might not be tomorrow, so don't. <laughs> they, said they said it'll be tomorrow, but it might not be. But you'll see, if it isn't tomorrow, that you'll know that you were wanting it because you were disappointed that it wasn't there. And you might blame me because I said so. <laughs> but I, could, I really could tell it was right there already. And then the smell of it, you know, was really nice. I had to go to, the, to get something in the office. And as I was going to the office, I was thinking of brownies tomorrow. You know, it's, it's so pernicious, that, um, that experience. The, the, want, the pleasant um, odor, the odor comes, it's pleasant. And that feeling sense is there. And what wanting is going after is not the brownie. It's the sense of pleasantness that wants to be fulfilled with. So there's the, the contact with what it is, you know, and that, um, that brings with it a kind of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. In this case, it's pleasant. And then that can bring about the wanting of it. So this is just how it goes. This is the law of cause and effect. So when there is awareness around either the lack of feeling, uh, the lack of, of um, the, the sense of emptiness, or the feeling of lack, uh, then right there you can bring awareness. Or when there's a sense of pleasant feeling, you know, when it comes with contact with something, when a pleasant feeling is there, you can notice the pleasant feeling. Actually, if one notices the pleasant feeling, if awareness is brought to that moment, it can drop away and there's no need for the wanting to arise because the pleasant feeling drops away. So this is the way that wanting becomes purified in the mind and heart. So bringing mindfulness to any of those places will help. And even bringing mindfulness to the place of wanting helps. Because if you notice with wanting, there's agitation in the mind-heart. You know, it's just agitated. It's just, 
kind of looking at, wanting, looking after, like, where is it? How can I get it? The mind is busy. And maybe the body gets busy kind of looking for it. And so what happens is, then when it gets fulfilled, say you're just really wanting um, something, maybe it's it's just a hit of um, looking at your email. And so we go do that. I'm, I'm talking about life in life. And so you go, you look at your email and then you get something and it gives you kind of a buzz or some hormone comes about that makes you feel really wanted and loved and whatever those hormones are. And then you feel fulfilled in that moment. Well, that is the cause and condition for that habit pattern to continue. So because you got that, you got that good feeling fulfilled, it happens again. You go for it again. And then you go for it again. And you keep getting it fulfilled. And there's this constant agitation to get that fulfillment. And so to stop that, that kind of hedonic treadmill that we're on, that goes after wanting and gets fulfilled, and therefore the wanting continues because we get the fulfillment and it keeps going after that, the thing is to notice the agitation in the mind. Just stop and notice the wanting. Turn the tension away from what is being wanted. And that's what we're learning how to do, being with the wanting mind instead of the object. So turning to the wanting and actually feeling that agitation. It's terribly uncomfortable. It's, you don't want to be with it, so you go, you, you'll turn and go towards the object to get it fulfilled. Right? That's what happens. So if you can stay with the wanting mind long enough to see that that too is impermanent, it's really a very powerful force in stopping that uh, habit pattern and in weakening that wanting mind towards whatever it is. Just get your... Most of you have the... You're in the position of not needing to go to your devices now. Um, you know, to the whatever you have to check email. And so you'll find probably that when you leave here, and even now you're probably finding some kind of deeper calm in the mind, less agitation. And people who leave a retreat often say, it was hard to think that I really had to get back to that, you know, that thing that was going to cause more and more agitation in my life in my mind. But eventually, it happens. I mean, it's, it's just part of our lives now, and we have to learn how to deal with it in more skillful ways. So, um, as one of our teachers, um, Bhikkhu Analayo, points out, one becomes unable to discern what constitutes one's own and another's welfare so it, it causes a lot of problems when we, we can't do this for ourselves, when we can't just renounce or step back and say, no, not now. So see, sometimes see who wins. You know, if you need to go to a place that regularly draws you, something like that, see, see what wins out. Is, um, is wisdom going to win out or is habit going to win out? And you know we can we can give ourselves these challenges so craving is a powerful force this tanha it's called in the pali language where it literally it's translated to thirst tanha t a n h a and it's called um tanha it's called thirst because in this regard it's depicted as a person feeling thirsty, and the analogy is, because of ignorance, that person continues to drink salt water, which, when taken, continually causes thirst for more and more and more. Because of ignorance, we drink or we take the wrong thing. We go after the wrong thing. It's a fuel. Ignorance is called the fuel for craving. And the wrong view that is connected with that ignorance 
is that whatever one craves and gets is going to give everlasting gratification. And it doesn't. Because everything in this relative world is impermanent. It doesn't last. There are happinesses, and we can enjoy them, but to know they're impermanent makes them actually more precious. And so not to think that it's, it's going to give everlasting gratification. This is the wrong view that is accompanying this ignorance. It's said that there are two great disappointments in life. Getting what you want, because then you cling to it. After craving comes clinging. Craving is wanting something and going after something that you think is going to cause you to be everlastingly satisfied, but it doesn't. But you think it does, and then you hold on to it tightly. That's clinging. So tanha is craving, and upadana is clinging. That's what comes next. So because you cling to it, you have to guard it, you have to worry about it, for fear you'll lose it, and you plan to get more and more of it because you might lose it, and you try to keep it perfect. So that's a lot of suffering because of craving and clinging. That All of that, holding on, protecting, overprotecting, like we get a good sitting and we think this is going to last for the rest of the day. You know, that's the... Um, the mistake we make sometimes that we get a good sitting in the morning and we think it's going to last forever, but it doesn't. So not getting what you want also is a cause for great disappointment and suffering because there's frustration, there's disappointment, there's more irrational greed. So there's a craving for pleasant feeling, Uh, that comes with sense objects, what is seen, what is heard, what is smelled, what is taste, and mental impressions. There is this craving for all the five sense door objects and um, mental objects. But it's not craving for those objects per se. It's craving for the pleasant feeling that comes with obtaining those objects. That's the big um, refined difference there. There's craving for existence. And how is that laid out in our lives just here on retreat? So, have you experienced planning mind today? You know, planning to exist in the future? And don't you notice that we never plan for anything um, that's uh, kind of distasteful, or (laughs) maybe we do sometimes, but we don't plan for anything that's unpleasant. We're always planning for something that's pleasant. Uh, So that's craving for existence because we want more and more experiences, usually. That's the planning mind. Extending one's existence. It also means, uh, in in the way the Buddha meant it, um, the impulse for rebirth at the moment of death. So that's another, you know, long Dharma talk in itself. And then there's craving for non-existence. So did you ever wish that you did not exist because of that awful meat hook in your back? You know, when you're sitting and it feels terrible and you want it to end? You want that experience to end in that moment. So that happens. We crave for that. We want the sitting to end. We want the bell to ring here or the beltering that we can go do something else, you know, eat. So those are the different kinds of cravings the, the Buddha talked about. So the training that we're undergoing now in Vipassana is to see things as they are, to see things in a way that really brings out the truth of how things are instead of covering it with our wrong view of there will be something that will be eternally satisfactory to us. And this is where that one of the first um, understandings, wisdom understandings, is that everything is impermanent. 
we come to understand that experientially by noticing that things arise, they change, and they pass away. Even thoughts do. And this is a very important um, understanding that we have experientially because we can be really attached to our thinking. You know, I, I think, therefore I am. But thinking is also impermanent. We, we see it. We understand it indisputably and deeply and experientially that everything, even mental realms, are impermanent. So that brings about the understanding that it's impossible to seek for eternal gratification because everything's impermanent. And so that is a, one of the second wisdom truths, the truth of the unsatisfactory nature. People think, you know, when they first come into the Dharma, what does that mean? You know, it's kind of, um, kind of pessimistic. And that the Buddha was, the Dharma is quite pessimistic as saying this about that everything is, you know, unsatisfactory. The nature of life is like that. Well, it's because things are impermanent. They really don't last. There is temporary satisfaction, but it's not eternal satisfaction. So this is one of the wisdoms that we come to understand, that craving cannot bring lasting happiness. So we need to watch out for it in our lives and really bring wisdom to the moments, these moments when we're craving something and seeing, does this really, is this really going to bring a satisfaction that um, is worthwhile, is beneficial? To notice craving in and of itself, desire, in and of itself, that's not leading to anything good. And of course, there are those cravings that we need to have for food and for water, taking care of ourselves, our family, having a good job, good education, um, all the ways of survival. And even, you know, the little cravings we have for brownies and, um, you know, coffee and, or tea in the morning and things like that, that's not a bad thing. It's just that when we're constantly kind of addicted to it, that it becomes harmful and suffering for us. So being heedful. Um, the Buddha said in the Dhammapada, if this sticky, uncouth craving overcomes you in the world, your sorrows grow like wild grass over rain. If in the world you overcome this uncouth craving, hard to escape, sorrows will roll off you like water beads off a lotus. Because we know the way. Um, And we can't catch it all the time, but most of the time we can. Or more of the time we can. So this is why we practice here so that we can understand what we're kind of opening to and really being um, truthful with ourselves that we're opening to this moment of wanting something. Can we be with that agitation of that wanting? Or maybe we see the moment just before that where we're opening to a pleasant feeling can mindfulness come to that pleasant feeling and really know it and see it pass away before the wanting even arises for that pleasant feeling? This is a way that we learn to get off the wheel more and more and more, off this uh, hedonic treadmill of just going for whatever the mind brings up and not really understanding, is this leading to suffering Or is this leading to the end of suffering? So this is um, one of the ways that the teachings of the Buddha has been translated. Um, This is by uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Letting go of desire is not a loss. You are not losing anything. Truly, when you let go of this as suffering, you gain inner peace and deep satisfaction. 
So I'll stop there. Let's sit for a moment and and let the words settle down. Thank you for your kind attention. So time for walking now and then coming back to chant before going to bed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.